morning. Uh, we're going back into the Word, man. If you got a Bible, yank it up, because here we go. Uh, we're going to jump into Daniel, one of my favorite, well, probably is my favorite book. And uh, I'll be honest with you, I've taught Daniel many, many times. Uh, I've taught Daniel in other countries, countries and other languages. Uh, but this particular time, this passage was really wrestling with, uh, or I was really wrestling with it this week. So uh, I'm pretty excited to share with you where, where I've landed on it, um, what God's shown me in here. But grab your Bible, turn there. I want to remind you, church is tonight, not right now. This is us unpacking the Word or me unpacking the Word. Tonight, we'll get together and we'll talk about this. So if you have thoughts, inputs, questions, things you want more answers to, uh, or things you feel like you'd like to share, we want you to come be part of that. We are in Tempe, Arizona. Um, if you hit us up online, we can show you how to find us. You can email us. You can hit, uh, go to social media, website, whatever, and we'll show you how to find us. And you're most definitely welcome to come join us. We munch on some food. Uh, we pray, spend some intentional time in prayer, and then we get right into the Word. So uh, we've been working through this series. we got uh, one more week of it, but is God among us? Not one of us, among us. And we sat around this theme of Revelation 21, verse 3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And today we are looking at, is God among us writing on the wall? Is God among us writing on the wall? And this is a unusual God among us. Uh, case. It's kind of unique from the others that we've looked at because God's presence, his appearance here is to a wicked pagan king. Um, it's kind of that scary moment when God defends his honor and when his long suffering comes to an end. And, uh, you know, the question for us is, can we be loyal to his word as believers? Can we be loyal to his word? Can we tell the truth even when it may be devastating or even damning to the ones who hear it? Okay, can we be loyal to his word in those times? So I'm going to read uh, some of Daniel 5 here and then we'll jump in. I'm going to start in verse 1 and read a few uh, few verses. It says, uh, the, the, uh, excuse me, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. And the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me his interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a, gold, a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. As always, it is your word. I pray you're glorified by it, and that I take 
none of your words and make them my own, Lord, but that I allow your word uh, to change me, to speak through me. Um, that the things that I say glorify you. And I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever heard the phrase, uh, can't read the writing on the wall? You know, they, they, they're not seeing the writing on the wall. We had a band. I may have shared this before. If I have, I apologize to repeat it. But we had a band. When I was in the band, we had a band that kind of followed us around for a little while. And it was some really, really old guys that got up on stage and, and, and played this really hard metal or tried to. And they had on like blue jeans and rolled up, that were rolled up around the ankle and Chuck Taylor's, uh, high tops. And, you know, it was like, wow, guys, like, you know, you can't read the writing on the wall. It's time to hang it up, fellas, you know. Um, but, but if we look at where it's actually coming from here in Daniel chapter five, it's far more haunting than that. It's a statement of doom. I mean, honestly, it's more like in the Pirates of Caribbean, if you've seen that movie, where Jack gets the mark on his hand and he can't get rid of it. It's, it's a sign of doom. He can't, can't remove it. Or in the horror movie The Ring, if you've seen it, not that I'm recommending it, but if you've seen the old horror movie The Ring, after you watch the tape, you may not understand what's being revealed to you in that tape, but having viewed it means you are already doomed. It's already already happened. So kind of like that. So today we're, is, is like I mentioned before, it's unlike so many other times. It's not God calling on a patriarch here. It's not God calling on a judge or a warrior uh, or a prophet like we've talked about. This is a moment when he personally addresses a pagan king with a deadly message to that pagan king. And like Daniel, God doesn't need us to defend his honor doesn't need us to defend his honor. That's not our responsibility. Our challenge is simply to accurately proclaim his word, even when it means a curse to those or may mean a curse to those who hear it. And you'll see that when we get to Daniel's response in a minute. But we do this, we do it because we hope. We hope and we trust that there may be someone who hears it that repents and believes, even if it's not the one we're directly speaking to. There's no outline today. I'm just following the story here. Uh, but I'll say this. I've heard this preached many times, and I'm probably one who's done so, about not treating the holy things of God as common and kind of taking the approach of these things being holy and, and, and treat them right. But the, as I've thought about it and wrestled back through this, I keep asking myself, what are the holy things today then? Like the bowls and the, the golden utensils from the temple that are talked about in this story. What would those be today? that are uncommon. Um, and so I'm be honest with you, man, I, I've, I've kind of changed my thought process here a little bit and God's shown it to me in a slightly different way. And that's what I want to show you today. So background again, Israel's gone from bad to worse. We've already talked about this. Uh, there's been a civil war. The, the nation split. Assyria came in and conquered the Northern kingdom of Israel and scattered those 10 tribes out then Babylon conquers Assyria. Then Babylon comes back and conquers the southern two tribes of Israel, which is known as Judah. And they take slaves back to Babylon. Ultimately, Jeremiah is left as a prophet in Jerusalem, uh, whereas Ezekiel and Daniel are both uh, drug off to Babylon with the other captives and their prophets there. God blesses Daniel, though. And God puts Daniel in this unique position 
with Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who had had, had done these attacks and stuff. And you could read about that in your own time. Um, but one thing interesting is Daniel leads Nebuchadnezzar to faith, to faith in God, and the two of them become very close friends. Uh, and as a result of Nebuchadnezzar's faith, the faith of the nation changes um, to, for the most part, follow the God of Israel. But years pass. Nebuchadnezzar dies. Daniel's probably in his 70s by the time we're at this place we are now. Uh, Belshazzar is on the throne. That's the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. All right. And he has a very wicked past. He and his side of the family have been trying to restore that ancient pagan worship of idols and false gods that Babylon was known for. They've been trying to kind of restore that. Meanwhile, the enemies of Babylon, Media and Persia, have united to overthrow it. So uh, I am in verse 1. I know I read it. We're going to go back in there. Verse 1, uh, excuse me, it says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand. This is a huge group of people of his lords. And I want you to notice how many times it says his in here. And drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he had tasted the wine, that literally means in understanding of wine. Or we might say under the influence of wine. Long and short, he's drunk, right? He's drunk. When he was drunk, he commanded that the vessels of God and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, there's no word for grandfather, so it just says father, uh, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines, like his, 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 might uh, drink from them, but they are not his. You know what I'm saying? Verse 3, Then they brought in the vessels uh, that had been taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze, uh, iron, wood, and stone. Twice, look in there, Daniel notes these objects came from, or he notes who they came from, where they came from. They came from the temple in Jerusalem. Two times he, he points that out, saying his focus is on who they belonged to. They belonged to the God of Israel. They were in the house of God in his temple. It's, the point is, it's not about the objects being holy. It's not about how sacred those objects are. That, that's not the point. It's not about the temple. It's not about Jerusalem. It's not about any of those things. It's about who those things belong to, whose temple that was, whose utensils those were, uh, whose city it was in, in Jerusalem, the God of Israel. That's what it's about. They're praising the gods of wealth with those things. So it's not just about the things being holy. They're taking those things and they're praising the gods of wealth. In fact, it's more so than that. Uh, they're mocking the God whose identity is tied to those things. Belshazzar is setting himself up as greater by making this decision. He's showing outright defiance of Jehovah or Yahweh. He's mocking, straight mocking. God's authority and showing no sense of fear. You ever been around somebody like that that has like no filter whatsoever? Here in Arizona, uh, one of the first things that caught us by surprise, you go out to eat, it's not uncommon for servers to cuss. You ask them how they're doing and they might throw a few cuss words in response. And it's not even uncommon or odd. You do that in the South and you're going to be in trouble. 
you know, because there's some sense of innate culture, innate, uh, I don't know, I don't know what it is, but something in the culture there, uh, Southern hospitality maybe, I don't know, but some sense of respect, I guess is the word I'm looking for, that's innate in that culture that's not the same here. And I'm not saying one's bad or anything, I'm just saying it's different. But have you ever known someone that has no fear of God whatsoever? Like they will say anything, no shame about saying anything or doing anything super sacrilegious. I, I heard one of the rock radio stations out here right shortly before we moved to Phoenix, excuse me, say some things that I won't repeat, but, but I couldn't believe they were saying them. Like they were so mocking Jesus and the cross uh, openly. And there's almost a sense of even if you don't believe for karma's sake, you're not going to say anything, you know. Um, there's just something frightening and sad about people that have no filter on those things with God, much like Belshazzar here. But listen, believe it. Believe this. Believe this. Know it. Believe it. God can and will address those people. He can and he will address those people. He handles his business. God does. But it's not our responsibility to handle it. It's not our responsibility to enforce it. It's not our responsibility to decide when or how God is going to defend himself. But it's our job just to make sure they know the truth. That, that's our job. One thing to be aware of here is God's not reacting to what's going on. He's not reacting in order to defend himself here. That's not happening. He's not caught off guard. God is sovereignly in control. Remember Jeremiah, who was back in Jerusalem? He wrote this in chapter 51, verse 38. They, Babylon, shall roar together like lions. They shall growl like lions' cubs while they are inflamed I will prepare them a feast. He's speaking for God. I'll make them drunk that they may become merry and then sleep a perpetual sleep and not wait. What does that mean? Be dead, declares the Lord. I will bring them down like lambs to the slaughter, like rams and male goats. Verse 57, I will make drunk her officials and her wise men, her governors, her commanders, and her warriors. They shall sleep a perpetual sleep and not wake, declares the Lord, whose name is the Lord of hosts or armies. He flat said he's going to do it almost to perfect detail. Verse 5, Daniel 5, immediately, 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 that moment, immediately, the fingers, plural, of a human hand, singular, appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand, that word hand is different than the other word hand, that's more like palm as it wrote. So you have fingers, hand, palm, they're all different words. It's describing this whole thing that's there. It's not just a finger. It is fingers, plural, hand, uh, and palm. The whole thing's there. There's only a couple of other times in the whole Bible that we're told God writes besides this. Only a couple of other times that we're told God writes. In Exodus 31, verse 18, uh, it says, When he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. Um, that's telling you the Ten Commandments, you know that, the ta tablets that were given. They were written with the finger of God. It's the same language here. 
Uh, Exodus 32, verse 16, referring to it again. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Um, that's one occasion. John chapter 8 gives us another occasion. In verse 6, they said to Jesus to test him that they may have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the ground. This is when they, the Pharisees had brought this woman caught in adultery to him and saying, what do we do to her? Should we stone her? And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. They're the same person of God. God is expressed in three persons. We call it a trinity. I believe it's the same person. Hand, finger, palm, you know. It's a person, the word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh. It's a person, the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh. It's a person, the commander of the armies of Yahweh, Jehovah. That's a person. Jesus most definitely is a person. The one who, listen to me, the one who wrote in the dirt, forgiving sin is the same one who wrote the laws that condemn sin into stone. The same one that wrote in the dirt, forgiving sin, is the one who wrote in stone the laws that condemn sin. And here, the one writing on the wall, verse 6. Then the Lord, excuse me, then the king's color changed. You know what that means? He went pale. He, the, his blood went out of him. He was so scared. And his thoughts alarmed him. What, the thought of what's happening here scared him to death. His limbs gave way. It literally means they loosened, like his, his knees start to buckle, like he suddenly can't stand. His knees knock together. So he literally starts to shake and collapses. Absolute terror. Absolute terror here. From laughing, drunk, party, to now absolute panic and terror. You ever found yourself in that situation? How often our irresponsible behavior turns like that? One minute sin is so much fun. You know what? We're the life of the party, man. This is the one to remember, man. This party's the party of all parties. And I'm right the center. I'm the champion of the party. Until... You fill in the blank. You know what I'm talking about. And the writing here again, it's, listen to me, the writing here is not a warning. We're going to see what it says, but it's not a warning. It's an epitaph. It's not like putting up a stop sign. It's like engraving a headstone. It's for the dead. All right, now I'm going to read this next section. We're going to cover a lot quick, but that's because we're following the story here. Uh, I'm not trying to unpack every little thing. So go with me as we read through a, a pretty good bit here. Verse 7, the king called loudly. He shouts. He's probably laying in the floor in pain, I would think. And he shouts to bring in these enchanters. I read this already. I'll skip forward. But he brings in his wise people. They can do nothing. Verse 10, the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet hall and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Now, that's a greeting, but that's an ironic one, considering he's about to die. O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change, as if that was up to you. You know what? Calm down. Just just chill. Let your color come back. I mean, what? what? There's a man in your kingdom in whom the spirit of the holy gods 
uh, is the spirit of the holy gods. Wild that she recognizes that in him is a spirit that is from a God who is set apart. She's still seeing it as plural. She doesn't quite get it, but she knows there's something different about him. And she would be right. In the days of your father, again, grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, is who she's referring to. Light and understanding and wisdom. Look at those descriptive terms. Like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians. You can look back at that. That's in chapter 2, the end of it. Enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, solve problems were found in this Daniel. What a description of this guy. Whom the king named Belshazzar. Uh, now, let... Daniel be called and he'll show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king and the king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, that's the name of the southern kingdom, whom the king of my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the God is, gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now, the wise men, the enchanters, They've been brought in to read this writing, which they were supposed to be under him. Remember, she pointed out he's supposed to be chief of them. So it's clear that times have changed. Nobody's listening to Daniel anymore at this point. Uh, verse 15, they brought in uh, before me to read this writing and make known this interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. Verse 16, but I have heard that you can give the interpretations Um and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a gold chain around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Third, because some believe uh, Nabonidus is the father of uh, Belshazzar here. So he is still king, uh, but he's out fighting wars or he's, he's off, the, off the throne wherever he's at. Belshazzar is set up as seated on the throne while he's away fighting battles or whatever. So he, technically that would make Daniel number three. That's what some believe. Verse 17, Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to somebody else. That tone ought to tell you what Daniel thinks of Belshazzar. Clearly, things are not the same as they were with Nebuchadnezzar. That ought to tell you how he feels. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. I'll definitely tell you what it says, though. So was it in a foreign language? Was it a code? Uh, it, it appeared strange either way. We don't really know, but it appeared strange to him. Maybe because he was drunk and couldn't read it. Who knows? But imagine God's word the same way. Sometimes we've been, we like myself, you've been a believer a pretty good while. You tend to forget what it's like to be someone apart from God. Um, it's written in Hebrew. It's written in Greek. We have English, yes, but originally it's written in Hebrew. It's written in Greek. So in that sense, it's foreign to us. Um, but even if we did know the language, we do learn the foreign or the Greek, or even if we're given an English translation of it, we, we still need somebody to tell us what it means. What do these things mean? Some of these things in here are hard to understand. Well, the Holy Spirit teaches us what it means, right? And, and we take the language, our language where we can understand it, and then we expect the Holy Spirit to help us know what it means. But it's even beyond that. No, it's notable here. 
that God is speaking not only to believers, God is speaking to an unbelieving believer here, to a pagan king, but God's people are put in place here to affirm God's word, to clarify God's word, to teach God's word. So when we get in God's word, we need people to help us understand it, to teach it to us, to tell it to us. So listen, man, if you're a believer, you're given the same task today. We we all are. Yes, we carry the gospel. Okay, yes, we do. It is good news. That's what it means. We carry the gospel. However, that good news is pointless, pointless without also preaching a need for it. Salvation is only sweet to a sinner. I'll say that again. Salvation is only sweet to a sinner. Only to a sinner. And the eyes of the sinner are blind to the writing in the word. It's not just the writing on the wall. It's the writing in the word. They're blind to it, man. They, they, they can't get it until the people of God share what it means. Read it to them. Share what it means. And then the Holy Spirit opens and reveals to them what it means. And when that sinner repents... When that sinner repents, the horror of just how close they were to the gates of hell, it will make grace so much more amazing. It will make grace and the love of God so much more epic every single day. Look at verse 18. Let's pick up some more. O king, the most high God gave, gave, gave Nebuchadnezzar, your grandfather, father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of his greatness that he gave him, all people's nations, languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, talking about Nebuchadnezzar, all this is in the book of Daniel, you can read it in your own time. When his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken. He's pointing out sovereignty of God in all this, that God gave him a a position of authority, and God took it away when he got too proud. He was driven from among the children of mankind. He was, and his mind was like that of a beast. And his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox. You can read the story. It's in Daniel. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind, and He sets over it whom He will. And you. You, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. Look what he says. Though you knew all of this. It reminds me of what Paul wrote in the New Testament in Romans uh, chapter 1. You can go read it in your own time. But be certain nobody has an excuse. No one has an excuse for ignorance or arrogance before God. Nobody. Verse 23. But you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. In other words, you have not, not only have you become proud, but you have defied him and placed yourself in his face. And the vessels of his house you've brought in before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose Hand is your breath, 
and whose are all your ways. Literally saying, who holds your breath in his hand and owns all of your ways. That God you have not honored. What a frightening statement that is. The God who holds your breath in his hand you haven't honored while you've honored these things that don't see or hear or know. Verse 24. Then from his, God's presence, the hand was sent. And this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Many, many uh, Tekel and Parson. Some translations may have like Perez or Eupharson. It's basically the same word. Verse 26. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found warning, wanting. Per, you didn't come up. You didn't meet the standard. Verse 28. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. First Samuel chapter 2. Hannah prays a prayer. And she says this in verse 2. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Watch what she says. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. He's the measure by which your actions are weighed. So what's what's the point of what's being said back in Daniel? Mene, it literally means mena. Amina, it's a it's a a unit of uh, money. Amina was at fifty shekels. A shekel is a unit of money. Amina was fifty of them, but it's from the verb to number. All right, tekel is shekel. So when when you're looking at that, that's also a unit of money. Amina was fifty shekels. A shekel is a shekel, you know. But that word tekel or shekel is from the verb to weigh. All right, and then you parson or parson or Perez, it literally means and half shekels, and half shekels, or it's from the verb to divide. So literally, numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. Your kingdom has been counted and counted again, weighed out, and it doesn't measure up. It's divided. And what's wild is, the reason I'm pointing out Mina, Shekel, all that, is because God is using money. Look what's happening now. God is using money to illustrate their shortfall and to pronounce their doom. Why is that a big deal? Because look who they were worshiping. Gold, silver, precious metals. He's using those things to pronounce their doom. Look, God doesn't share his glory, guys. Sorry, he doesn't. He doesn't share his throne. He's not mocked. He is long-suffering, yes, but he is not eternally passive. He's long-suffering, but he's not eternally passive. God's patience does have an end. But remember now, there's a time of weighing for all people. All people. There's a time of weighing for everybody. Judgment's a reality, and it's something we should be preaching as believers. We should be telling the world, this world has writing on the wall. Will you be weighed? I'm going to ask you straight up. Will you be weighed and found wanting? Will you come up short? Are you going to find yourself lacking, not good enough? You know what scales are. We put something on one side and something on the other, and they should balance. If they don't, one side comes up short. So are you going to be coming up short? I can tell you right now the answer to that is yes, because none of us are good enough. 
But for those whose faith is in Christ, is in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our righteousness is found in Him alone. Hebrews 9.27 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, the weighing. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. He is the one who was weighed for us. So in that sense, we look forward to him, not the weighing. We look forward to him, not the judgment. He was judged on our behalf. But for everybody else, if your faith is not in Christ, you can turn right on over to Revelation 20. And you can look at verse 11. I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Talking about God here. And from his presence, earth, sky fled away. There was no place found for them. It's a, it's a, it's a moment of fear and terror and judgment. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. And watch this. The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they'd done. So, does that mean uh, if they did good enough, they got in? If they did bad enough, they didn't? No. It means very simply this. You're going to be judged by one of two things. You're either going to be judged by what you've done or by what Christ has done. That's it. You're either going to be judged by what you've done, by what Christ has done. If it's based on what you've done, my next question then is, will that measure up? Will that measure up? And if the balance is what's trying to happen, you better know what the counterweight is. You better know what you're balancing against. I can tell you what that is. It's Christ. It's perfection. Do you balance up to that? No, you do not. But that's the beauty of the cross. By faith, you don't have to. But let's go on. Verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with the purple gold chain put around his neck. Proclamation was made about him that he should be third ruler in the king. Now, this might, kingdom, this might be mockery. Uh, maybe it's hope that, hey, I'm still going to do this because maybe Daniel can fix this moment. Um, could Belshazzar have repented and been saved here? Absolutely. I, I believe he could have. Would that mean that the Babylon didn't fall, that the kingdom? No, absolutely not. Babylon's still going to fall. Uh, because sin, look, the sin that causes death is forgivable. The sin that, that puts you in hell, the, the being a sinner, is forgivable right up to the point that you cross that door of death and you go into death. At that point, it's, it's too late. But until that point, yes, he could certainly have repented. But the sin, though, and the consequences of that sin are still going to happen. And not only that... God's plan is still going to roll forward, all right, no matter what. But either way, it doesn't matter if he would have or if he wouldn't have because verse 30 says that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, Babylonian king, was killed. And Darius the Mede, Media, Mede, received, I love that, received the kingdom. Daniel will not say earned, took, gained. He received it, being about 62 years old. When he did. So the fall of Babylon, you can look at it, historians record it this way, that the city was, according to historians, uh, and, and a lot of this is, you know, taken loosely. I mean, some of it could be legend, but, but history basically holds that, that uh, Babylon was about 14 miles square with the Euphrates River coming north to south straight through the whole city. And it had two sets of walls, an inner wall and an outer wall that protected it. The walls 
were said to be 350 feet high and 87 feet thick. Get your brain around that. And there were 150 gates of solid brass, 250 watchtowers that were each 100 feet higher than the walls. Uh, and then a moat around the whole thing that was 30 feet wide across, and I don't know how deep. But um, October 12th, 539 B.C., we know the date, October 12th, 539 B.C., the Medes dug a canal and diverted the Euphrates River in order to allow for that dry riverbed to drop below the city wall, and they literally went straight into the kingdom uh, on that dry canal from where they diverted the water, right walk right under the walls, straight into the kingdom. So while the writing on the wall is going on, in are coming the meats. It's already happening. The writing on the wall, guys, was to affirm God's sovereignty. It was to make sure that history never recorded that Babylon just overpowered, was just overpowered by a greater kingdom. It shows us that God ordained it to be so. And if the people knew the word of God, listen to me, if they knew the word of God, they would have known this. Isaiah chapter 13. This is 150 years before the exile began. 150 years beforehand. Isaiah 13 verse 17, he records God saying, Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against Babylon who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. The Medes don't. They can't be bought out, is what he's saying. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not even pity children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and the pomp of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. He said that, that was pronounced beforehand, 150 years beforehand. And even Dan, Jeremiah, we mentioned it before, but written at or close to the time of exile, Jeremiah 51 verse 11, sharpen your arrows, take up your shields. Look at this. The Lord has stirred up the spirit of the kings of the Medes because his, God's purpose concerning Babylon is to destroy it. For that, look what he says, that is the vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance for his temple. How about that? And look, we need to know his word. First Thessalonians 5 verse 2 says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security. Hey, we're drinking. We're having a good time. It's a party. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. But the same hand that writes destruction on the wall also writes his name on our hearts. Second Corinthians 3 3 says, And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And lastly, Satan's fate is sealed. The writing is on the wall of his kingdom. John 16, verse 8, Jesus wrote, The Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and concerning righteous, or concerning righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Verse 11, concerning judgment here, because the ruler of the world is judged. 
May it be said of us, guys, that there is a man or woman here in whom is the Holy Spirit of the living God. Light, understanding, and wisdom is found in him or in her. An excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding uh, to interpret, to explain, to solve. And, and she or he, they can tell you what God says. Man, let that be said of us. But listen, then, may we be faithful to it. May we be faithful to it. Even if it means preaching sin and hell. And look, I don't know where you are today. I don't know if you believe in God. I don't know if you fear Him. I don't know if hell's a thought on your mind or sin. I don't know if you hope in Him. I have no idea. But I can tell you right now, without a shadow of a doubt, there is certainly writing on the wall. I can promise you that. I'm not here, though, to be the finger that writes it. I'm just the one that's going to be the mouth that proclaims what it says to you. The word of God. I'm not the one who judges people's fate, guys. I'm just here to proclaim the truth of his gospel. And my hope is that if you hear that truth, if you hear that good news, you might repent. You might recognize the sinner that you are and repent. That's my hope. But that's only going to come if you realize that your life has been weighed out and you don't measure up because of sin. If that's you today, tell him that. Ask him to be your righteousness. Tell Jesus your life is now his. Let me pray for you. Lord, I love your word. You are awesome, amazing, incredible. Help us be faithful to you. Ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.